Welcome to Winning with Diversity, a podcast to help you learn the strategies to transform your business through diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm your host, Kurt Merriweather, VP of Products at the Diversity Movement. Today, we'll be exploring how organizations can build high-performing teams to create new products and develop innovative ideas to unlock business growth. I'm excited to be joined by our guest, Aaron Peace, Associate Director of Design for Method. Aaron works in experience design and strategy at Method. And Aaron has a background in journalism, graphic design, and service design. Outside of work, Aaron loves to read, run, and travel. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks so much, Kurt. Happy to be here. Excellent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change things up a little bit and ask you a question about something somebody wouldn't know about you from Googling you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I have a, well, you probably don't, wouldn't know this from Googling me either. I have, a, I have a sister, half sister who lived in Hawaii for much of her life. And so I used to go out and visit her and was out in the water swimming, snorkeling one time, visiting her and was suddenly attacked by a large man of war. Oh, wow. um, thought I was going to die. It had like six feet long tentacles that were invisible and wrapped themselves mm-hmm. all over my body. And I had to swim back to shore uh, with those all over me. And my niece was on the shore at the time. And she took, she was about three years old. She took one look at me and she just burst out crying because I looked so scary. So it was one of the worst, what do you call it, injuries I've ever had. But it was also really funny and a great sort of community experience because literally everyone on the beach came over to me and gave me different tips on whether yeah, I should put vinegar on it, whether it needs to go to the hospital. Like it was <laughs> it was uh, intense. So it's definitely something you wouldn't know about me Googling me. Okay. Being attacked by a man of war in Hawaii. Um, yes. Uh, so that is uh, <laughs> a really good story. Wasn't expecting that one. So, you know, obviously you've, you've had a pretty varied set of things that you've done in your background. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, how you got to be where you are based on your journey and what led you to navigating the things that you navigated to get to the point where you're, you're doing design work now. Sure. Yeah. I started out actually studying journalism in undergrad. I remember I was trying to decide what to major in, got the packet and circled everything, like pretty much half of the majors I circled. And I was like, well, this isn't going to work. I can't study everything. But so I decided on journalism because it felt like the way that I could sort of learn about every topic and really be a generalist, immerse myself in lots of things through a medium, which I really liked, which was writing. So I did that and I freelanced as a a writer for a couple years during and after college, but I always felt like there was sort of a stopping point with journalism. You're doing a lot of good research, uncovering a lot of people's stories and, and things that are happening in the world. But I felt that I wanted to do more than than understand and amplify problems, right? I wanted to actually be part of solutions or addressing those issues in a way. And so I had always really enjoyed art as well. And I felt that there was some path forward for me in terms of design. So actually taking what, what you learn through investigative research and, and interviews and things like that 
and you know being allowed to have an opinion and move forward with a solution to actually attack those things. So I decided to go back to college and I went to a graphic communication design program at Central St. Martins, which was very broad. So we learned everything from you know typical graphic design to design research and physical computing. And it was really more about how can we use design to investigate problems and then also communicate stories or you know, share different ways of, of addressing them. And so from there, my design career, I guess, started after that, which was in service design. So I was working as sort of a digital designer within a service design company, but I was able through that, I was really able to learn the principles of service design and UX design and sort of that typical process of research and iteration and, and problem solving to get to a, to get to a solution. So from there, I, I felt like I wanted to do a little bit more focus on craft. As much as I loved service design, it a lot of it ended up in, in decks and maps, and there wasn't too much um, tangible output. So I focused a little bit more on product design for the next couple of years. And then here I am sort of in the middle of those two, where I do do a lot of decks and strategy and storytelling, but it's always in service of a final designed output as well. Got it. It's So you mentioned service design, which, which is interesting. and wanted to have you kind of drill into that a little bit more. And so if you were going to contrast service design and product design, how would you, how would you do that? How would you uh, explain that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think of product design as one, as a part of service design and some people might hate me for saying that, but service design, in my opinion, involves both physical and digital touch points. Mm -hmm. So imagine someone going to Disney World. The experience of going to Disney World is much more than just maybe the Disney World app. So the Disney World app might help guide you through that experience, but the actual design of the other humans in that space, the physical surroundings that are guiding you, things like that are all involved in service design. So it can get really unwieldy, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it's exciting because you can think about uh, the context that a person is in when they're actually moving through experience with or without their phone. Yes, that's that's a really good um, way to think about products. I also think about products the same way. A lot of times people will say it's about the device you have in your hand, but it really is about the experience, the environment, the other elements of what it's like, what you're doing when you're using your phone, for example, and trying to meet the needs of a variety of different kinds of users and their environments and understanding what those look like. And so it strikes me that that seems like an area where you can take your journalistic investigation approach and, and kind of marry those two things. And so is that one of the things that you you think about when you're trying to evaluate somebody's environment and their background is how, how do those things come together in terms of your journalistic background and your design background? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think both writing, journalism, design, it's all about observation, right? So it's all about understanding how people are actually moving through an experience or a space. It's more of what they do than what they say. So so yes, I would say that observing what people do, not just what they say, and just understanding context like you were saying. So really getting at, you know, where is this person going to be when they're using this app? Do they even have, you know, access to a computer? versus do they only have their mobile device, things like that. So I definitely think context is everything. And 
and having sort of a journalistic background in terms of being able to get at someone's context and lifestyle through qualitative interviews and things like that informs everything I do. Got it. In one of the quotes, I remember, I think Steve Jobs said this, is that uh, don't listen to people to tell you what to build, build something better. And so how do you distinguish between what people say they want versus what they actually want in, in your process of testing and, and really digging into that part of the design process? I mean, it's not always at odds, but I think there are things that people don't tell you. So I would say, like I was saying, just observation, like I'm working with a retailer right now, a pet retailer, and some of our work is simply to go into these stores and watch like at what moment does the employee come up to the customer? How long do they converse? Does the customer look like they're annoyed by that person or do they look like they're really engaged in that kind of conversation? You could ask someone later, you know, uh, do you enjoy it when someone greets you at a store? And they tell you something, but it might not necessarily be representative of of how they are at that moment because they might have had a different kind of day or, you know, mm -hmm. their, their pet might be anxious for some reason. Right. So just observing people in that environment. And that's one of the hard things about COVID, frankly, is that we don't get to do as much of that as possible. So I do think research can be a little bit stifled because of that. Right. That's, that's uh, something that, you know, hopefully we're getting to the point where we can start having some of those observations and to be in different spaces to, to think about design and being inspired by the different places that we, we visit. And so when you're, you know, pre-COVID, you know, how would you gather inspiration for, for different things in terms of your observation? How do you, how do you know what to observe? Yeah. I mean, I think that observing the, the people throughout their day, right, as much as possible. Of course, you don't always have the, the time and resources to do that. But um, for example, I did a project where I was working on redesigning a parking experience. Mm -hmm. So, but rather than just, you know, sitting in a parking lot, watching people as they came in and out, we got in people's cars, told them before, paid them all that. But uh, we actually got in people's cars and we started with them far away from the parking lot. And then we just chatted with them about their day, blah, 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 went into the parking lot, kept chatting with them about their day, right? Not really asking them to comment too much on the parking, but similarly watching how they're interacting with the different wayfinding and things like that mm -hmm. while getting an understanding of sort of who they are as a person, what motivates them, how easily frustrated they are and things like that. So just as much time as you can spend with a person, obviously. But of course, that's all filtered through me, right? Me right. as a biased human. So. Right. <laughs> I definitely think it's important to have, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point, but, you know, a, a number of different teammates and a number of different perspectives and a number of different interviews. So you don't just take this one sort of experience and say, oh, I know all about people who are, you know, women in their 30s and how they park because right. I did this one interview. Right. Yes, that's a really important part of building products, creating new business opportunities is to make sure that the filter that we use is as bias-free as possible. And so when that comes through one individual and then you speak on behalf of a group of people who are diverse, that's tough to do. And so I definitely want to come back and, and talk about that in a lot of detail because that's, I think, the essence of how we can do a better job of creating growth opportunities for companies and organizations is to 
think about that filtering process because that is so critical in terms of taking those observations and making sure that we're making the right decisions based on the input that we're getting. I have an oppor- had an opportunity to read some of the uh, the work that you've written, digging into your writing background there for a minute. And there's this concept of speculative design that you wrote about. And so can you describe what that is? <laughs> Never heard of that yeah. before actually yet until I saw that. So oh, what good. is speculative design? Sure. Yeah. It's sort of um in academia, I think, at the moment. So it's unfortunate that not many people have heard of it, but it is essentially a method for exploring preferable futures. So mm. there's this graphic that I'll try to describe that the originators of it, Fiona, Fiona Raby and Anthony Dunn created, which is essentially, if you can imagine a cone, like going out from me uh, and widening as it gets further into space. And you have these cones of possibility. So you have, what is it? Possible, probable, plausible, sort of narrowing in. And then somewhere in there between probable and plausible is preferable. And so what speculative design tries to do is create probes that allow us humans to have conversations and introspect on what we want the future to be like. So there's examples of this in popular culture, like Black Mirror, if anyone's ever seen that show, uh, or, or, you know, classic 1984 kind of dystopian design mm-hmm. fiction novels, things like that. So there's ways that those are more like accessible mediums, but then there's also sort of object-based speculative design, which is a lot of what is is created today in the design world. And it's just really supposed to start that conversation around, can you imagine what it would be like if, and then if, do we want this future? So it's it's really interesting. And I, I think there are ways that it could be made more accessible, but at the moment, a lot of it lives in museums, but it's great sort of conversation pieces around how we could design better futures. And, and do you use that way of thinking in your own design approach when you're thinking about you know, what's possible? I would say it helps me push the limits, but at the moment, it's not very, it, it's, there's a tension, frankly, between speculative design and capitalism or, you know, the idea of needing to have really tangible, measurable outcomes. Like the purpose of speculative design is not to solve a problem. It's to explore a possibility. And so I think there is space for it in a very, very white space area of design. But a a lot of times what I do is pass that to the point where I do have a brief. And so there is, you know, there is supposed to be an outcome beyond design probe. Right. And so being able to imagine the future so that you can say, here's what's possible. I I remember watching a documentary where uh, Nikola Tesla was on a beach somewhere thinking about waves. And then that was the inspiration for thinking about alternating current. And so there, there are a few examples where people go through literally kind of mental imaging of what's possible and then can see this future and then they are able to create it. I'm not one of those people, but uh, there are people who do that well. And so I think it's part of the, the beginning of the design process, using that as a way to kind of expand thinking but then saying, to, to your point, how does this turn into a tangible, measurable outcome? 
And then how do you combine that with something that's more user-centered? So there was one of the things I remember reading in, in your piece was the tension between user-centered design and why there are challenges with user-centered design. And so I want to talk about the user-centered piece because that is also an area where I think there's an opportunity for folks to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of the user-centered designed uh, approach. So could you talk about uh, that and you know, if there's controversy with user-centered design, what, what some of the controversy is there? Sure. I mean, yeah, there's so many different uh, terms now, right? User-centered design, there's customer-centered design, people, planet-centered human. So people, lots of different ways to talk about it. And I'm definitely not an expert. Um, but I'd say one thing that comes to mind if you think about user-centered design is that there's essentially this assumption that anything that is smoother or easier is better, right? So there's this idea of reducing friction, frictionless experiences, seamless experiences. But I think what happens there is that we easily confuse business goals with human goals or user goals, right? So mm -hmm. the one-click checkout, like no one wants that. It's easier, but it's it's there because it makes the company more money, right? So there's this kind of tension, I think, between like convenience and then some trade-offs of convenience, whether that's privacy, whether that's like spending more money than you intended to, things like that. So that's, I think, the tension where something might be, if you're just really focused on this particular product, yes, it might be better for the user. It's a little less frustrating. It's a little bit easier. But if you zoom out and think about that user's life, are you helping them achieve their goals? It's not always that black and white. Mm -hmm. I think that's well said, and especially as we think about building teams, for example. So because friction is thought of as being negative, then there's a tendency to work with people who share the same ideas, same, same backgrounds, because, you know, quite frankly, it is easier to talk to somebody who shares lots of characteristics. And so that's where I think from a team building point of view, there's an opportunity to shift the narrative. So it's not just about the ease of communication or the frictionless discussion, but are we pushing on one another's ideas to a point where the friction becomes positive and the outcome becomes better because you you are kind of pushing on on ideas. And so just curious about your experiences and having debates with different members of, of teams that you've worked in where there's friction and then kind of seeking the friction as opposed totally. to from it. Yeah, I think it can apply to both designing products and working in teams, like you're saying, there's this concept of, of good burdens, which I just love. And it's just the idea essentially of, of effortful yet rewarding work, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's doing the dishes or going for a run or something that, you know, is causes stress in one sense, but not in a in a bad way. It's actually helping you grow. And I think when it comes to when it comes to team building, yeah, I mean at the beginning of any project I do, you know, we set we have a ways of working. We set some principles, assuming good intent, you know, being willing to challenge ideas, things like that. But then when it comes to at the actual project, obviously actions speak louder than words. So I think it's really about like building in the time <laughs> to have those conversations because they take time. And I have been on some projects where 
that frustration, I really didn't want to be there in the moment, right? It, the friction felt difficult. It felt inefficient, felt like we weren't getting anywhere. And, but I realized that that pressure was there because of the time, mm-hmm. time constraint. If I had had a little bit more time, I would have felt more comfortable diving into those discussions, which were a little bit more philosophical. The one I'm referring to is actually a project when I was working on with a gaming company. And so we were discussing a lot about sort of what it means to fail in gaming, whether or not that, how it's sort of a positive experience, even though it's a right. negative experience. Mm-hmm. We all had different ideas on this topic and it and it will would inform our eventual strategy in this design, but it felt like these discussions around this topic were kind of heated. So yeah, so building in time for that. And then I would say the other thing is, just being curious is something that I'm trying to be to be better at, especially as we grow more global, both just in general, but also at my company, working with lots of teams all over the world. So trying to understand beyond just, you know, what is someone's maybe critical point of view on this project, but also just like, what are they interested in in their day-to-day life? What holidays do they celebrate? What other languages do they speak? Questions like that, that facilitate belonging. So that when it comes time to have conversations about the work, people feel comfortable offering critical feedback. So it's definitely a work in progress. And it feels like, you know, something that we're just going to, I'm just going to have to continue to work on forever. But having that as a goal of like facilitating belonging, I think allows people to, to feel like they can speak up. Right. And so that goes back to some research that Google has done on high performing teams where psychological safety is a piece of being able to participate in a team like that. And empathy is an important piece of that. So when creating inclusive practices, being able to create a sense of belonging so that you understand someone else's perspective and you've taken the time to to get to know them. One of the partners that we have, John Samuel, who leads Abler, which is a joint venture between Walk West and LCI. One of the things he talks about quite a bit is proximity builds, breeds empathy. And so being able to be close and spend time with someone before you enter into a project is important because then while the friction probably will still feel uncomfortable, it's not that I'm attacking you as a person, I'm challenging your ideas. And so there's, it it's, takes a while in terms of team building to create that kind of rapport where you're able to challenge someone's uh, ideas without them feeling like you're attacking them as a person. And I, I've, I've worked with lots of creatives over the years, and sometimes being able to do that is a challenge, both in, on the part of the person giving the feedback and the creative who puts all their heart and soul into something. And then you say something about, oh, I don't think that's quite right, or it's off the mark, or why did you do it like this? Those kinds of pieces of feedback kind of strike at the, the heart of the creative not just the the design that they're creating. So that's that's an important part of building high-performing teams in particular. And so I, I love the example that you gave around working with a global team and being able to understand what holidays do you celebrate? Tell me, teach me how to say something in your language. And those principles apply to all kinds of difference. So whether it's based on race or sexual identity, sexual orientation or gender identity, being able to spend some time to understand where someone's coming from uh, is so important in building a stronger workplace. So excited that uh, you're starting that journey. And uh, it's definitely effortful work, as you said before. 
what you totally. I think it can be a, a tricky balance, right, of trying to be curious about others without feeling like you're tokenizing or you're, mm -hmm. you know, making someone feel like they're different or anything like that. So it's definitely a balance. But I think there's some things you can just be explicit about, like like you were saying about not being precious about your ideas. We're here to attack the work, not you, etc. And calling it out as sort of like a company-wide initiative like what one thing that we're we're thinking about starting is to what I was saying earlier actually using using some of our professional development credits for language learning for the places that we have offices mm -hmm. right so that it's a very clear sort of politically correct way to connect with others across continental divides without feeling like you necessarily have to tiptoe into those waters worrying if you're sort of ostracizing someone by being curious about their particular identity. And that it does take a, a level of, you know, what we would call cultural competence to be able to do that well. And so that takes practicing, making mistakes and being okay with that and going back to what you were saying at the very beginning around assuming positive intent. And so as long as, you know, we're assuming positive intent, then hopefully the other party will forgive our misstep and we'll see that as a way to appreciate the fact that uh, you're trying to make an effort to get to know who they are. Totally. Uh, but also acknowledging that positive intent doesn't absolve you, right? Correct. Just because you correct. just you met well doesn't <laughs> right. mean it landed well. That That is exactly right. So there's, while not malicious, you still want to be competent. And so that takes practice and, and saying, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry that that went that way. Here's what I was trying to say, or how should I say this differently? And using that as a teaching opportunity as you're trying to get to know someone you're working with in your team. So this is something that I'm passionate about in terms of helping organizations uh, create the right kinds of uh, working methods so that they can be better and ultimately deliver better, better outcomes as a result of that. So I, I, I wanted to tackle this last topic around uh, a term that gets thrown around quite a bit, but I'm sure you've heard, it's design thinking. And design thinking, a lot of times, you know, I envision someone in a workshop with a bunch of pieces of paper, and they're just iterating, 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 and they come up with an idea and they execute it. But I'm sure <laughs> there's much more to it than that. And so I wanted to get your perspective on design thinking, why you think it's uh, kind of, it's become such a buzzword and the right ways to think about it from your perspective. And then how, how could we can extend that concept beyond the product design? Yeah, it's a very loaded term. I don't typically use it, even though a lot of people would say what I do is design thinking work. First of all, it's redundant. <laughs> design involves thinking, design is thinking, but it's basically a way to package and sell a process, right? And the people who have done it have been very successful at that. And it is the process that designers have used for a long time. And so there's kind of two main critiques of it. The first is that, well, it's sort of threatening to typical graphic designers or people who have been schooled in design because they're saying, you know, there's no one size fits all. This is not just easy. You make it look easier than it is. So it's sort of one one critique is that it takes, you know, a lot of experience and time to get to really understand and develop the process. And then the second critique is that it's it can protect white supremacy. I mean, it is protecting the status quo a lot of times because it is often done by white people or people who have benefited from a system that is designed for white people. And so it's a way of 
designing for rather than designing with, even though there are these principles of, you know, empathy and, and research, it's so quick and it's so contained that it is never really enough that someone could truly understand what the problems are and how complex they are. And then also the fact that they could think that they could solve them in a workshop with sticky notes versus through, you know, a combination of advocacy, government action, tax dollars, things like that. So that's sort of the multiple critiques of it. But the actual design process, as no matter how you want to define it, but the idea of, you know, expanding and contracting, observing a lot, taking a lot of inputs in, trying to synthesize, coming back open again to kind of come up with tons of different different ways to address it with the people who 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 are going to use the the solution or or the product or whatever it is and then continually iterating that's useful that will always be useful and i think it applies to so many different um disciplines and industries and things like that so i understand why design thinking has become such a popular workshop buzzword approach because it is a good approach to continually you know to pretend like you're completely ignorant start wide and then keep zooming in and out until you reach some sort of conclusion that feels that feels thorough. Okay. Um, I'm glad you I don't uh, know what you what do you think? What what uh, <laughs> what have you heard about design thinking? It is it is similar, I think understanding your customer, that understanding their environment and then being able to rapidly iterate using techniques that are cheap at first because a lot of times when you're building a product the expense comes in when you've decided now i'm going to develop something and you don't understand fully what the problem is and how people are going to interact with the solution so mm -hmm. being able to iterate get something that represents what the end product would be so you get use that as a way to get customer feedback so that you, you can get then say well what about this what about this what about this and so by the time you get to a point where you're ready to start development now you've got built-in customer feedback, hopefully, that's going to help you create the right solution. So the point you were making about design thinking and who's executing design thinking uh, being predominantly white, I think is part of the challenge or it have, has a narrow set of experiences even sometimes because of who's schooled and how to do that work. And so the, the challenge that I think we have is how do you invite more different kinds of people into that process? Mm -hmm. So that then your output is going to be better. So there, I was talking to somebody about a situation that was similar to this. There was a business that had built a, a technology platform for dance studios, but their research was based on their family, which mm -hmm. was very homogeneous. There was a whole, so there were other people who wanted to use the dance platform for dance studios, but they were from a different eth ethnic group. And the way they socialized in that, in that ethnic group was very different than what the product was tested on. So then when other people tried to use it, they were like, yeah, we're not using it because it doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And so that company missed out on an opportunity to expand their marketplace because of the narrow way that they did the initial research. And so how can teams guard against those blind spots thinking that they've covered the universe of problems when they really haven't. So what would you, if you had a, a magic wand to wave 
around that process? How, how should teams think about that differently? That is the, the question. I think there's the first step would be relinquishing some control. <laughs> I think a lot of designers have an inclination to be perfectionist in some sense, myself included. And part of what drew them to design is the aesthetics or, you know, the ability to have that control over an experience or a product. So I think there has to be some acceptance that something that is better for a certain group of people or for a larger group of people might not be appealing to them or to you or might not be, you know, typically what we see as good Eurocentric graphic design and something like that. So and then also understanding that maybe maybe it's more about focusing on the process, like defining success of, of a design project as the number of people in the community who were involved versus, you know, how polished the final output was. So I just, I definitely think there's a, there's a tension there's, you know, with participatory design, like good participatory design, it's, it's a bit messier than most designers would like it to be. And they don't necessarily get to put their stamp on it. So I'd say, yeah, relinquishing a little bit of control and a little bit of ego and allowing the process to be the, product allowing the process to be the product that's a good way to state that because ultimately how do you iterate make that process better and better and thinking about not just the outcome but the process and making sure that that's inclusive and, and hopefully if it is then the product also will mirror the process and so i think that's a good way to to say that and again, back to back to time, right? I think one of the main reasons that design thinking has become so negatively considered is because it, it tries to contract a really deep process and perhaps long process into a couple couple short weeks in a boardroom. So yeah, allowing the time for, for things to go wrong. Things never go wrong. <laughs> never. Not when I'm around. <laughs> Nothing unforeseen ever happened. <laughs> and then that's that's part of the challenge is time boxing is part of the process, which is helpful because then the extraneous thoughts hopefully go away and you're focusing on those things that are really important by time boxing them. It does truncate the process, which is a problem. And so trying to create the right balance between those things or outcomes is the challenge. So hopefully... There's continuity among the group so that you've got the same group of people working together. Hopefully, you know, they work together better, but there, it, it is a definitely trade. There's nothing that's not without trade-offs. Mm -hmm. So exactly. uh, that is, that is the world that we live in. Unfortunately, as, as their, their trade-offs around time versus output. And uh, uh, it's, it's one of those challenges. I'm always thinking of ways to, to solve, uh, but I haven't figured it out. Maybe you have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one, one last question for you, thinking about the field of design specifically and some of the challenges that we're facing societally, what do you see as the future of design being more integrated into other aspects of problem solving beyond, you know, what we typically think of as a uh, product to service design? I think that, and I think I mentioned this on our, um, the panel that I did with you uh, a couple months ago, mm -hmm. but I see design as a really powerful tool for storytelling. So the, the way to bring 
attention to an idea similar to, you know, what originally attracted me to journalism in terms of like learning lots of different things and bringing awareness to different things. Design and is a way of communicating what's important and including speculative design. So if you think about um, Black Mirror is a good example of showing us the extremes of what today's technology could be if we continued on that path. I think whether it's film or you know, writing or a designed object or even, you know, motion graphics, any form of design can help us tell stories about possible futures so that we can sort of reflect more sanely on our present. I don't think that that's the way that design is necessarily going. I think it's going more toward that sort of how can we make consumer experiences more frictionless, more seamless, things like that, like we were talking about earlier. But I do think that designers are going to quickly get fed up with that because that's not very creative. You know, and you're executing on someone else's ideas for what is a good idea. So there's definitely movement of people focused more on critical design and what the what the future could be. So I'm hoping to be more more in that camp to kind of expose the trade-offs of of where we're of what we're currently doing and where that could lead us. All right. Well, I, with that, I'll uh, leave it there. So, you know, that's that'll be something that we grapple with is friction versus effortful, uh, positive experiences. So, yeah, not a, not a very happy note to end on. Sorry, Kurt. <laughs> we got we got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do, but I'm hopeful and hopefully you are, too, in terms of the things that we're seeing, that there are some that uh, want to take on these challenges and to make sure that we're we're all made better as a result of it. Uh, so, Aaron, thank you so much uh, for spending some time uh, with me today on the podcast. Thank you so much. Walking in someone else's shoes, seeing it from a different view. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll be back soon with another episode. Make sure to visit our website at thediversitymovement.com for more podcasts, white papers, videos, blogs, and tools to introduce DEI and innovation to your organization. If you found value in this show, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or simply tell a friend about the show. And to experience DEI and innovation in action, please check out our TDM Connect app when you visit our website. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Kurt Merriweather, and we'll see you next time on Winning with Diversity. See eye to eye. I know that the grass is greener when we see the other side. Even if courage is borrowed, then there's hope for our tomorrows. And believe we're all worth it. Can be the change with the world. We all deserve all our voices to be heard. To we And watch how it goes It's who we are It's who we are